Thank you for tuning in again to the Word of Life Ministries podcast for another Spirit-filled message with Rocky Brown. I think we've proved in the light of the Scriptures that why you must be born again. We talked about man's fall. We talked about the about man being separated from God through sin and spiritual death and all that. We we talked about what is the difference between salvation and being saved. Down here in southeast Kentucky, everybody's just saved, and we don't really know the difference between born again, salvation. Not everybody, but that is a large <laughs> that is a large amount of people using the term. Someone went to the altar and they got saved, right? And so. But we've proven in the last two episodes or the last two teachings that born again is where it starts. And then when you're birthed into the kingdom, you live in the state of salvation. And saved is a something that happened to you because you were rescued by being born again. And so with that said, teaching all of this up to this point, part three is... Is salvation really for all or only some, as some people would say? So we're going to endeavor to do what we always do, which is get in the Scriptures and see what the Word says about it. And so there are a lot of people that are really, really, really super confused about this. And if you don't rightly divide the Scriptures, you will be thoroughly confused by this. I don't know if you remember me talking about sometime earlier in the year about a term called motivated reasoning. Motivated reasoning is something that the human brain does when it when it collects all of the it, the human brain wants to collect all of the data that it can to support why I believe this while rejecting anything that refutes what I believe. And so that is, motivated reasoning is something that you see that is heavily, heavily used in politics. Well, I, I must be a Christian and vote Republican. And I can't, and, and you'll hear people say, I can't be a Christian and vote Democrat. Well, the Bible don't say that. And, and it's important to understand that this group over here is supporting and standing for ungodly things, and this group over here is supporting and standing for ungodly things. Right? So we have to choose and see, okay, Lord, what do we want to do here? We want to hear, we want to get the sum total of all of the data and then make an educated decision, right? So, but motivated reasoning says, well, this is all the reasons why I'm right while tearing down the other people. So, a lot, I see a lot of similarities between politics and the church because here's what they both do. You ready for this? They endeavor, many in politics and many in the church, endeavor to build their throne upon the rubble of the ones that they've torn down. So the whole focus of their ministry, the whole focus of their, uh, of their political campaigns and everything else is absolutely tearing down everybody else that doesn't believe like them, tearing them down, tearing them down, tearing them down, and then raising their throne upon the rubble in which they've tore down. Now, do you think that that's right in the sight of the Lord? They say to you, it's not right in the sight of the Lord. So what we need to do, and this is no different. So we're not going at this to go against anybody. We're not trying to single out a group that says they believe this or call themselves this or this and that. We've got too many. We've, we've got too much going on out there now where they're trying to 
substantiate a cause instead of preach Christ. This is why my this is why my denomination or my clique or my little group, this is why we're right and why everybody else is wrong. Well, they're trying to substantiate and prove a cause instead of preaching Christ. So that's why we endeavor to get the sum total of the scriptures that we can and teach from that perspective and teach, okay, this is why, and, and tonight we're going to look at this. This is kind of going to be like almost like volleyball or tennis because we're going to look at this. Do, is salvation only for some or is salvation available for all? And as this, this series, it's so funny how I keep this, every time I keep going through this series, it keeps landing back on these two verses. Like it started here and this has been the theme throughout this entire teaching series, and those two verses are John 3, 16 and 17. And so it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. And verse 18 would go on to say, But the one who believes not is already condemned because they have not believed in the only begotten Son of God. Right? So, the hope of the entire world throughout, the, throughout all the ages rests on the words, for God so loved. The hope of every human heart, every human soul, every human spirit, the only hope in eternity that we have rests on the words, for God so loved. Mm. And so I've got a lot to say, and so I'm going to read uh, some from my notes. Um, it, you know, I, I'm not much of a I'm not much of a note or a word for word note preacher, but as I went back through and, and just pulled some data from some other messages that I'd preached along these lines, I found that in my notes there were some really, really, really important things that the Lord said that I felt like really needed to be reiterated. And so I'm just going to read you the notes, and then we'll get into the Scripture. So in my notes, I've got, this is something that the, that the Holy Spirit just said to me, was the hope of the entire world throughout the ages rests on the statement, for God so loved. The light and power that, this, that these verses contain is beyond measure. And the fullness of their meaning is beyond comprehension. So stop and think about that just for a minute. If you get someone to believe that for God so loved them that he gave his one and only son that if they'll believe in him, they'll never perish but have everlasting life, that person can call upon the name of the Lord and be born again. That is the greatest demonstration of God's working power when he pulls someone from spiritual death and places them into spiritual life. They are birthed into the kingdom in spiritual life. That's the greatest demonstration of God's mighty work and power. How can we fathom the extent of God's mighty work and power? We can't fathom that. How can we, how can we begin to claim to understand that we even remotely have an understanding of that? You see what I'm saying? The light and wisdom and power that's in those verses is life-giving power. The one that rescues from the power of darkness and places one into the kingdom of the Son of God's love. Hallelujah. Woo. It's a very, it's a promise. 
right from the very mouth and heart of God himself. Oh, <laughs> I mean, you just stick a fork in it right there and it'd be done. Think about that. It is a promise right from the mouth and heart of God himself, spoken into the earth through his Son. It is a declaration of God's love and his willingness to sacrifice the most precious thing to him so that he could spend eternity with you and me and whosoever will believe. This truth is why the enemy fights so hard to get some to pervert and skew these precious words and to try to make them seem to be something that they're not. Mm. In all rebellion against this truth, Satan and his kingdom have and sadly do move upon the hearts and minds of some Christians to teach and preach that this, these verses do not mean what they say. In arrogance and pride, some will try to convince you that God picks and chooses whom he will take to heaven and whom he will send to hell. They try to, they try and do convince those who believe like them that they believe this way because God has chosen them for salvation above other people. Mm. These type of doctrines and teachings have various names and have been around since before the time of the Pharisees in one form or another, but in essence, they are all the same and in truth, they root from either ignorance, arrogance, Pride or a corrupted heart. Israel has struggled and still does with this ideology almost from the time of their inception. We see that through the Old and New Testament that Israel thought that it was God's intent to save them only. Go back through the Old Testament scriptures and look even to the New Testament. It was Israel thought that God was only going to deliver them and that was all there was going to be. And we see that the Pharisees themselves become isolated and separated from regular people, and we see them, along with the scribes, exalting and promoting themselves as better than everyone that was different from them. Even this, even this doctrine carries into the early years of the church, and we see some of the disciples still refusing to eat with Gentiles even after the Holy Ghost had been poured out on the Gentiles right before their very eyes. So in Galatians chapter 2, you would see that Paul said, I withstood Cephas to his face because his, he was to be blamed because of his hypocrisy. So Cephas is Peter, of course. Peter was at Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10. Peter was the very first one to witness the Holy Spirit be poured out on the Gentiles. He and the people that came with him. The apostle to the Jews, quotation fingers, was the very first one to see the Holy Spirit poured out on the Gentiles. You can't receive the Holy Ghost without being born again. So the very first thing that we see happen is somewhere along the lines, apparently either apparently Cornelius and his household believed in Christ Jesus before they got there. Now, my buddy Mike Mays had come up with a, a, it's a wonderful thought. You can't prove it inside the light of the scriptures, but... It's very, very extremely plausible because, see, Cornelius was a centurion, a Roman centurion. And there, Michael, come up with the point, you know, he may be that centurion that in Matthew chapter 8 that sent for the Lord to come heal his servant who was sick to death when Jesus said, I have not seen such great faith even in Israel. So think about that. 
there's a very, very good chance that Cornelius in Acts 10 is the Roman centurion in Matthew 8 when Jesus marvels at his faith and says, I have not found faith like this, not even in all of Israel, right? So when we think about that, so that same Peter who saw the Lord do all these different things, healed the Roman centurion servant, the Greek Syrophoenician woman, all, all this, he saw all this stuff. Then he is, he is in Cornelius' house. An angel has appeared to Cornelius, and, a, and, and, and the Peter has saw in the same chapter the great sheet let down from heaven, in which God said, you don't call what I've cleansed uncommon or unholy. So you see that even the apostles got carried away to some extent with this similar doctrine about that, you know, because Peter wouldn't eat with the, with the Gentiles when James, the Lord's brother, came down from Israel. So that would tell me that James, the Lord's brother, was carried away with that same doctrine that even Peter kind of acted weird and, and did act weird when James showed up. You see what I'm saying? So these are, you, you know, that's not the apostle James, that's the Lord's brother, that shows up because he was the pastor in Jerusalem, and we see Peter here, and then Paul comes in and withstands him to his face and says, hey, you know what? If you don't live like a Jew, you live according to the law of the Gentiles, why are you, you're living in freedom, why are you, li why are you now refusing to live like, refusing to act this way because other people have showed up? That's paraphrasing, of course. But so we see that, that, that the, even the apostles got carried away in this doctrine to some extent. So we should not think it strange or unusual that these type doctrines have crept their way through time to us today. What is at the heart of the matter? Why would someone want to willingly believe this, then try to convince someone that God has chosen some for heaven and some for hell? Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I have struggled with people excuse me, that have this mindset. <laughs> I, have, I have really struggled. Um, but here's some things that the Lord's been teaching me, okay? So for some to believe this is, is, is honestly and genuinely out of ignorance, out of ignorance of the Scriptures, out of, the, out of, out of, out of following a wrong teaching ignorantly by someone who they've put up here and said, okay, this is the man that I choose to follow. This is the man of God. This is what the man of God says. And what the man of God says can't be questioned, so this must be what it says, instead of getting in there and rightly dividing the Scriptures for themselves. So for some folks, it is honestly and genuinely out of ignorance. For others that I have dealt with, it is outright pride and arrogance. And, and I mean, and it's, it is tough navigating sometimes. So, let's take a look at some of the scriptures that people use to try to prove or substantiate the point that they believe that God chooses some for heaven and some for hell, right? So, go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Starting at verse 27, it says, Now he who searches the hearts 
knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. We love to quote that verse and pull that out of and pull that out of context and not talk about anything before or after. But verse 29 says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. All right. So then, if you read that and you read that just like that, it may make you think, "Huh, man, maybe there is a special group of people that's specifically called." Right? Let's keep reading. Go to Ephesians chapter one, and we're going to read verses three through twelve. Ephesians chapter one, verses three through twelve. So it starts out and it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. All right. So if I look at the terminology predestined, that would tell me, and I could look this up in a dictionary and use a couple of different ways, but so that would tell me that God has specifically selected a group of people from before the foundation of the world. He has specifically chosen a group of people from the foundation of the world. Okay, He has, some, t- some translations would say, predetermined a group of people, okay? So, but keep that in mind, a group of people. So, it could very easily be a small group or it could be a large group. The only way that we know whether it's a small group or a large group is to, what? Rightly divide the scriptures and not just look for what we want to hear, right? So predestined here, translated from the Greek word proerizo, and this word means to determine something beforehand, to decide something beforehand. In the New Testament, it can mean, it could be of God decreeing something from eternity. It can mean to foreordain or appoint beforehand. So in that definition, it doesn't really tell us that God has chosen a specific group of people 
Now, when we say a specific group of people, we're saying that God specifically looked down through time and picked this person and picked that person and picked this person and he picked them, he picked them, he picked them, he picked them. Well, that definition doesn't tell us that. And if we read those scriptures right, it just tells us that he selected a group of people. Doesn't say that he selected a group of people, this group, over the, this group. See what I'm saying? So we see there, we're looking at the we're looking at the definition of predestined, the word translated predestined, which is used there twice in Ephesians, and it's used there twice in Romans. It's also used, let me check my notes here. It's used this word pro rizzo is used a sum total of six times in the Greek New Testament. Four times it's translated dest or predestined. One time it's translated before, and one time it's translated ordained. So we see that this word has a broader meaning than this narrow scope, right? So if we have to look, if we if we really honestly want to analyze predestined, we would also, I feel like, have to look at the word chose that Paul that's used in Ephesians chapter one right here, right? So let's go back up and look at that. Verse 4 says that just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. All right? So we're going to look at the word chose. This word chose is translated from the Greek word eklagomai, eklagomai. And it means to choose, to make a choice, to pick out, or to choose out something for one's self. All right. So that could point and say, okay, God has specifically picked out for himself a select group of people, right? And that's what a lot of these folks believe, and that's what they stand on. But I'm going to challenge you to something. Here's what I'm going to challenge you to. See, there's a word that comes after chose that's very, very important. It's a plural possessive pronoun. It's the word us. It's translated the word us, but the Greek word there, pas, means, can mean me, we, I, you, we're, so it's a plural possessive pl pl uh, pronoun. It wouldn't be I, but it would be we, our, us, so then it shows joint ownership of something. So he says, we have, he has chose us. All right, so if, I, if someone was to come to me and say, okay, well, it says right here that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, I'm going to have to question you and say, who's us? Prove to me who us is. Because if we're going to put the scope that this is specifically to a very, very specific hand-selected group of people, then I'm going to have to challenge you to go back up to verse 1 and verse 2, and tell me who Paul is writing to. Look at that in Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 1, reading verses 1 and 2. Watch what Paul says here. Paul, not Paul, but the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul, says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, and faithful in Christ Jesus. So then if this is really pertaining to a very specific select group of people, 
that would have to mean that he's only talking to the church at Ephesus. So then none of the book of Ephesians applies to us because he's specifically writing to Ephesians. If the, if the terminology here is, is that he has predestined a very select group of people and he has chose a very select group of people, then Paul says this is to the saints who are in Ephesus. So it either applies to strictly only the saints in Ephesus or it applies to whoever believes this. <laughs> Can you see that? Isn't that good? Glory to God. It either applies strictly to the saints in Ephesus because that is who the letter is pinned to. Or it applies to whoever will believe. See, there's where these people struggle with is that they can't believe that their choice can usurp God's power and authority. They, don't, they, they, they have no understanding of a permissive will of God. There's a perfect will, and then there's a permissive will. Would you like for me to prove that? A perfect will of God is for someone to believe on Jesus and be born again. In his permissive will through the fall of man, he has no choice but to permit rape in the earth until the time of the great white throne of judgment. Because this world system is still under satanic rule. Is God an advocate of rape? Absolutely not. Does God commission rape? Absolutely not. Did God ordain rape? Absolutely not. Emphatically, a thousand times over again? Absolutely no. We know that it takes place, though, and it's horrible. What about the murder of children? What about the murder of the innocent? Does God ordain these things? Does God commission these things? So then it must mean that somewhere here, someone's got a choice that can actually usurp his will and even his commandments to a certain point that when you get to a certain point, you step out of this body, you no longer have your own authority. You no longer have your own will, and now you are in trouble because you are in the, you are in the hands of a righteous and holy God who has absolutely no tolerance for sin, no tolerance for rebellion, no tolerance for, for disobedience when you step into eternity. He'll permit those things in the earth, giving man time and space to repent. He said that of Jezebel. He said, I gave, in Revelation, remember that? He said, I gave her space to repent, and she repented not. Well, if she didn't have a choice, why did the Lord Jesus say that? Why would he say, I gave her space to repent, and she repented not? That means his will right there, that would tell you that his will was for her to repent. And her will was to repent not. And she went right on into destruction. And he said, and because she repented not, now I'm going to cast her into a sick bed. I'm going to cast anybody that fools with her into a sick bed. And I'm going to cast her children into a sick bed and into destruction. The thing that people struggle with here is they, they hear this term, sovereignty of God. And they think that God micromanages every absolute little thing and, and anything that happens is inside the scope of his will. And it's simply not the case. But a lot of people want to believe that. Let's keep going. Let's, let's look at another scripture that folks use to try to prove that there is a select group that God has chosen. 
John chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 43 and 44. John 6, verses 43 and 44. It says, Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. All right, now some people say right there, okay, well, you know what? You don't believe because God hasn't drawn you through Jesus. You don't believe in Jesus. You haven't received Jesus. You haven't put your faith in him and believed on him as Savior because God's not drawing you, and because God's not drawing you, now you can't be born again because you're not one of the elect. You're not one of the chosen. You're not one of the predestined. But watch this. Let's, let's rightly divide the Scriptures. Let's go to John chapter 12. <laughs> let's go to John chapter 12, and let's look at verses 27 through 33. John chapter 12, starting at verse 27. Jesus said, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it, and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world would be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to my Self. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. Interestingly enough, in the Greek in the Greek manuscripts, people is there's no word here for peoples. That's a word that's inserted by translators for clarity's sake. It just stops and Jesus says, And if I and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. Well, <laughs> I mean, all would mean all, wouldn't it? So he says in John 6, no one can come to me lest the Father draws him. John 12, he says, Let, and when I'm lifted up, he said, I'm going to draw all to myself. Well, if no one can come to him without the Father drawing him, and he says in John 12, when I am lifted up, I'm going to draw all to myself, wouldn't that mean by default that the Father is drawing the people to him? That's what it's got to mean. He said in John 6, he said, you, he said, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And he says, and if I am lifted up, I'll draw all to myself. So when he was lifted up, now what's happening? Was he lifted up? Was he crucified? Absolutely. Did his blood, was his blood shed? Absolutely. Did he do, was he crucified? buried, resurrected, ascended on high, took his blood into the holiest world of all, uh, for one time, for all time. He did all of these things like he said he would do. So guess what? You can't stop at John 6 and say, uh, well, you don't believe right now because Jesus said that if you don't come to him, if you're not being drawn to him, it's because God's not drawing you. And because God's not drawing you, you're not one of his chosen. You're not one of the elect. But Jesus said, when I'm lifted up, I'm going to draw all to me. So that means he is drawing all to himself. 
have to be very cautious about things that make us feel like we're elite or we're special or we're more valuable to God than this person or that person. There is no one who has any less right to be standing here preaching this word than I do. No right, no less right. And yet, here I am because of him. It's so important for us to get our minds right, to get our hearts right, so that way we we should want to take what we have and give it to others. And that doesn't mean shove shove it down their throat. That doesn't mean beat them over the head with the word. That doesn't mean condemn them. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean cast them down or cast them out or anything else. That means we take this, which means so much to us, which is so precious to us, and we take that and we freely give it. Now, it's important for us to understand that there are a number of references in the Old and New Testament that either specifically say or the text infers that God shows absolutely no partiality to any person. And so, it's important for us to understand that. So, Acts chapter 10, starting at verse 34, says this, verses 34 and 35. It says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation... Whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. What's that say right there? But in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. Whoever would be whoever, would it not? So that must mean that it's open to everybody. Go to Romans chapter 2, and I'm gonna, we're going to do a lot of reading on some scriptures right here verses, Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God, or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads to repentance, but in accordance with the hardness of your heart, the hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of in the wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory honor and immortality but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness indignation and wrath tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Well, I mean, it would just stand to reason if I just stopped right here and I just 
and I just did just a little pondering on this. If I, if I said that I believed that God picked some for heaven and some for hell and that salvation was for only an elect group and not for everybody, how do I reconcile that with what I've just read right here that says, twice we've just read back-to-back scriptures that say God shows no partiality to any person. God shows no partiality to any man. So then, how do I reconcile this? We have to, this, is, this is what they do. They say, well, that only applies to the... This, these scriptures only, only apply to the ones in whom God has chosen. He shows no partiality in, in, to the ones that he has chosen. The other ones have already been... They're not selected. They've already been cast out into, a, into eternity. You see what I'm saying? So they have to backpedal, and they have to start distorting and twisting the scriptures to continue to substantiate their point. Now you will see people who you can talk to and they'll go, oh, I never saw that before. Thank you for showing me that. And then you'll get some who go berserk mode. And that's the ones you think you're about gonna have to, you're about gonna have to whip them with a two before. Because I mean they will get aggressive. They will get offensive. And they, you know, and I've had some of them come at me. I mean, I had a woman come at me back in February through a, through via text, uh, wanting to debate the scriptures and 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 held fast to this belief. And I said, "Okay, what about this scripture?" And man, just like that, she flipped her lid and started getting just offensive and aggressive. And I just kept answering with the word, answering with the word, answering with the word. And finally, she just quit. And there was one person that really, really pushed me to the point. I told the Lord, I said, Lord, if you'll get me out of trouble, I'll drive to their house right now and drag them out of their house and whip their rear end. And if I can't whip their rear end, I'm going to, I'll at least enjoy the fight. That's a, that, this, they had, they had, they had come so long and so offensive that they pushed me to the point. I told the Lord, I said, Lord, you get me out of trouble. <laughs> I will go and whip them like a dog. And if I can't, I'm at least going to enjoy it. This doctrine, for those that it has sunk in their heart and pride and arrogance has them puffed up, it makes them feel like they are so much greater than everybody else. And I'm going to be honest with you. The Lord told me one time, he said, there are two people that you know you won't be able to trust anything that they say because their whole, their whole heart is corrupted. He said, number one, a person that believes that God picks some for heaven and some for hell, he said their heart's corrupt. And genuinely believe that, not just in arrogance, but genuinely believe, but, you know, are not just in in ignorance, you know, that just misunderstand the scriptures and and, and genuinely, honestly have misunderstanding. Not those people, but the people who are so offensive with this and aggressive with this. And and he, he said, those people are corrupted in their heart to the core. Those and people who support abortion. Now, we're not talking about a medical emergency situation where a a decision has to be made between the life of the mother and the life of the child. We're not talking about that situation. We're talking about people who are just full-scale, support abortion, whatever, bring the baby out, kill it on the table, whatever else. Those people, they are, these two classes of people 
are thoroughly compromised to the core. And you can't, everything that they believe is corrupted. Everything else that they believe is corrupted by that. You got to be very careful about that. So going over here, let's go on to some more scriptures that give us a little bit of insight about how God views people. Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 5. Ephesians 6, starting at verse 5. Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a, whether he is a slave or free. Now listen here. And you masters do the same thing to them, giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. Mm-hmm. There is no partiality with him. Well, the word partiality would it means to have favor on this person and have none for this one. Partial. I'm going to do good to this person. I'm going to show favor to this person. I'm going to show grace to this person. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do all these things for this person, but I'm not going to do anything for this person. So right there is three scriptures back to back that show us, that specifically say, God shows no partiality. But we're not even done. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 18, and we're going to read through verse 25. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. I didn't say that. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 18. Wives, submit to your own husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. I didn't say that. No preacher said that. The Lord said that. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. I didn't say that. The Lord said that. The Word of God says that. So if a, so if a wife has a trouble with that, take that up with your, the Lord and not with me. And if a husband has trouble with that, take that up with the Lord and don't take that up with me. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. Galatians 6-7 6-7 would tell us this. This is not in my notes, but think about it like this. Let me go over there and just flip that open. So think about it like this. Let me go to Galatians right here. And again, this was not in my notes, but I just feel like the Lord wanted me to read this. Galatians 6-7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever 
a person sows, that they will also reap. The one who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. So that would tell you right there, that does not specifically say that God shows no partiality, but you can tell by the general content of the text that that's exactly what it means. Do not be deceived. For whatever a person sows, that they will also reap. So that means that God loves me a little bit more than he loves you, and he's going to let me buy with a little bit more than he'll let you buy? Huh? Does that mean that he loves this person a little bit more than he loves me, and so he's going to tolerate a little bit more from this person than he will from me? No, it says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a person sows, that so they will also reap. So that would tell you right there, God is partial to no person. Now we have seen four scriptures that specifically say that God shows no partiality to any person. Now we're coming to the we're coming about to the end of our time, but let's look at let's look at Galatians chapter two and we'll close on this, and then we'll pick up next week on the next part of this. I knew it wasn't I knew I wasn't gonna be able to get all this done in one evening. Sure as the world sure as I standing here, I knew I wasn't gonna be able to get it done. Uh, going to go to Galatians chapter two and read verses one through six. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of a reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised and this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seemed to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me, God shows personal favoritism, to no one. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. So God shows no personal favoritism to any person. It doesn't say any believer, did it? Any of those last verses that we've read in, the, uh, in those different chapters, none of those verses even remotely hint or elude to the fact that this word is being spoken to a specific group of people. God says, I don't show partiality to anybody. I show no personal favoritism to any person. Now, people will say, well, you know, why does it look like this person's, you know, more blessed or, or, or so on and so forth than because of me? Maybe they're obe more obedient than you are because, you know, obedience is crucial. <laughs> I mean, it, it, we're going to talk about that in later messages. 
about being obedient because obedient is a requirement of God and of the Lord. So people that are seemingly being more blessed by God obviously are living an obedient life. And that's tough for a lot of people to understand. God's not showing them personal favoritism just because he likes them better than he likes you. Their obedience is permitting him to do more for them than he can for you because your disobedience over here has got him gridlocked and he can't come, he can't get through that. And he's, you'll talk to people, talk to people, talk to people, and they just keep trying to cop out, well, you know, God knows my heart and I've got grace and all this different stuff. Well, you know what? At some point, you maybe you ought to stop and realize and go, hey, something's not working real right right here. Something's not working quite right right here. What is it? Am I missing it somewhere? Have I missed God in this somewhere? Am I, I don't need to be, you know what? I don't need to be told that I am disobedient. I have the spirit of God living on the inside of me. My buddy, I'm not going to call his name because he may listen to this, but absolutely wonderful, wonderful, wonderful man of God. I mean, just a man of faith and power. And such a blessing and such a, and, and I mean, I, I mean, just, I love it like a brother. And he and I were talking the other day and he told me, he said, you know, brother, he said, he said, I sinned this morning. I said, you did? He said, yep. Stuff like, don't let stuff like that rattle you. When a believer comes to you and says that they've sinned, don't, don't kick them. Don't get on the offense and get ready to kick them out of the family and everything else. I, I go right here in Galatians again. Watch this. Brethren, if any man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So he said, I said, you did. And I just kind of chuckled. You know what I mean? I said, well, what's going on, man? He said, you know, he said, we got this big storm coming. And I said, yeah. And he said, you know, he said, I called my wife. And he said, I asked my wife to go do this because I was trying to get this done before this big storm came. And, uh, and he said, he said, you know, it got me immediately in my flesh. <laughs> and he said, he said, my wife, he said, I knew not to say what I was about to say. He said, I knew it. He said, I knew it the whole time. He said, I knew not to send that text. He said, I knew it. He said, this Holy Spirit kept bearing witness, bearing witness. And he said, you know what? He said, I just launched it. And then the fight was on, <laughs> you know. And so, but, and, and I had talked to him just a couple hours after this happened. And uh, he said, but you know what? He said, the Spirit of God got a hold of me showed me that I was wrong. He said, and I immediately, he said, after a little bit, he said, I went back in. He said, and I told my wife, he said, you know, the Lord showed me this was wrong. I shouldn't have did this. I shouldn't have said, and it wasn't anything mean. I mean, it was, you know, I, I mean, you know how quarrels go. You know, sometimes you just quarrel with people. It's, you, you're not really trying to be mean. You just have an argument with them. You're in the flesh. They're in the flesh. The flesh collide, and there you go. And then you get two believers that run headlong into each other and knock, and back, God get knocked back into the Spirit. But uh, what I'm saying is, is that, you know, people, <laughs> people, 
make mistakes, right? People mess up. People go, but it's important to understand that there that that disobedience, when it's corrected, opens the doorway back up for God to just go boom right here and open the flow back up. Your disobedience, and we're going to see that in later messages, how someone's disobedience can absolutely just hinder the work of God in their life. So I encourage it. If you got stuff going on in your life that you feel like you know the Holy Spirit's bearing witness, you know, if the Lord, you're watching movies you ain't supposed to be watching, and the Holy Spirit's bearing witness with that, stop. Don't don't watch them. If you if you're if you're listening to music that you know you shouldn't be listening to, and the Holy Spirit's bearing witness with that, don't. You know I like some country music. I like good country music. I, I mean I really do. I mean I like a good cowboy song and everything else. But you know, I don't need to be listening to Friends in Low Places because that's a drinking song. And I used to love to drink while listening to that song. And my mind gets pulled back there. And then my mind gets to thinking about that stuff. Then I got to get a hold of myself. You know, if you Holy Spirit, if you're drinking, doing stuff that you know you're not supposed to be doing, and the Holy Spirit is bearing witness with you, don't do this. Stop this. Don't do it. Stop it. It's that simple. Anything, and it may be, you know, it may be just, oh man, just being grouchy with people or argumentative with people or picking at people. Whatever the Holy Spirit is bearing witness there with, that there's some form of disobedience, and you're getting that check. If you're doing it, just stop. So that way, the power of God is able to flow through you, because this thing ain't about us, Right? It ain't just about us. It's about him. It's about preaching this gospel. It's about seeing the dead raised, the sick healed, the lepers cleansed, people that are oppressed of the devil set free, all these different things. It's about him. And we need to be mindful of those things that in our disobedience, he shows no partiality. So when we're disobedient, he goes and sets you over here and he goes, okay, I'm giving you space to repent. 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 Many people go headlong into rebellion against God in sin for years and then can't figure out why they've been living in sin for 10 years and now all of a sudden this horrible sickness has come upon them and why has God done this to them? He didn't do that to them. Their disobedience and their rebellion against God living in sin, letting sin permeate their life has given place to the adversary to get in there and attack them. And that's where a lot of people struggle. So, But we're going to land right there on... Right here, God shows no personal favoritism to any man. And then next week, we're going to pick right back up. We'll just briefly uh, go back over what we talked about tonight, and we're going to go on into the last verses about God not showing partiality. Then we're going to go into, we're going to start looking at all the verses that show us, blessed be God's salvation is for all. So... Pray this message strengthened, blessed, and encouraged you. You can find Word of Life Ministries on YouTube and Facebook. Just look for the guy with the cowboy hat on.